Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Go ahead and start turning there. All right. I grew up in South Carolina. There's a few of us in the room. Uh, that doesn't surprise you. You, you know it. You, you hear it in the way I say things like poem and stingers and internship and all sorts of other things that I'm up here preaching and looking in your face and you get this really weird look and I just go, yes, accent again, whatever, and move on. Uh, growing up in South Carolina provided some unique experiences, some good, some not so good. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. I grew up as a preacher's kid in the church. And some of the small town things that happened in South Carolina were not so good. I remember that we had Boys Home of the South was a group that came to our church and there were some African-American boys who came to the church. My dad was a pastor. They got saved and it was time then to baptize them or not baptize them. And there was this whole thing going on that I was pretty much oblivious to as a teenager, as a, as a kid, didn't know what was happening. But they were in a car one day when my brother was there, my dad was there, and my brother was asking, Dad, are you going to baptize those little black boys? And my dad said, well, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll baptize them. And my brother's next question was, so, Dad, when are we moving? Because you see, in that church, my dad had gotten a letter from a church member associated with a racist group because... He had been told, if you decide that you baptize these black boys, then you're done here. You're going to move on. Now, my dad is no small man. Uh, he was probably around 250 pounds, probably benched around 250, 300 pounds, second degree black belt in karate. And so I think his words were something like, if you think you can make me move on, then come try it. In, in the name of Christ, in a glorifying way, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> There's some moments in life where there's righteous indignation that just needs to take hold and somebody just needs to be called out. It wasn't everybody in the church. It was just a couple. But can you imagine in the church of Christ saying, you can't baptize this soul, this eternal soul created in the image of God in this congregation because the outer skeleton of this soul doesn't look like I want it to look like. How petty is that? And yet we live in an America, these were the 1980s, but we live in an America where this still happens. I grew up in South Carolina. I had a, a bicycle. It was a small town. It was like Cedarville. I had a bicycle. I could ride all over town. I could literally go anywhere I wanted to and felt safe. It was the 80s. It was a small town. It was country. But I went, we had railroad tracks actually literally in our town, kind of dividing the different portions of the town. And we had this place called the Projects over on one side of the town. And I had this best friend at the time, his name was Claude. We played basketball together. We played football together. We, we, we just, we played everything together. And video games was another thing that, that kind of united us. We would play video games against each other, competing together all the time. And I got on my bicycle and I had ridden over to the wrong side of the tracks. And you, you, this won't mean anything to most of you, but we were playing RBI baseball on what I think was the Atari 5200, where the joysticks used to just have one joystick that moved up and one button. And you had to do everything the old school way and so I was over there playing video games. I don't know if I'd gotten permission or had just done it. I, there's no telling. I, but when I got back home, my dad said, where were you? And I was like, uh-oh, am I in trouble? And he said, well, I know where you were because I got a phone call because you were in the projects. Somebody had decided that if I were in that part of our town, bad things were happening and they needed to call my dad because I shouldn't be over there. 
playing video games and eating Twinkies or Swiss cake rolls with my best friend. This is where I grew up. I thank God for sports. I thank God for family. I thank God for the gospel that allowed some of these different things that were in my small town not to take root in my own heart. I remember going and picking people up and dropping people off for basketball practice, for football practice, for all of these things. I've seen racism firsthand. I have seen people claim it's heritage, not hatred, as they fly their rebel flag in their front yards and on the backs of their trucks and other locations. I went to seminary, 1997 to 2001 in that time frame, attended a church that had been planted because the pastor had been told he couldn't baptize an African-American, and so he had planted a new church where you could baptize an African-American. I'm really thankful that at my house, my dad and my mom welcomed anybody, and I never thought twice about it. I'll never forget one instance where one of my buddies after football practice, I think it was two days in August, we were like, yeah, we're going to go over to the house and we're going to eat Swiss cake rolls and drink sweet tea and play Atari or something. It, it may have been Sega by that time. I don't remember the time frame, but it was some video game system because I've like had them all. Commodore 64, Atari 2600, 5200, Sega Genesis, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Xbox, you name it, I've had them all, all right? And so... We were playing games, and, I, and me and Claude, Claude came over to the house all the time. He just walked right in. He knew where the junk f uh, food cabinet was, and it was two cabinets. We had a lot of junk food. And he knew where it was. It was awesome. And I could eat it back then and not gain weight, which was really awesome. <laughs> and, but there was this other buddy that came, and he stopped at the door. And when we went inside, we were already in the cabinet, grabbing out some junk food, getting something to drink. He's still standing in the garage. I walk out to the garage, and flippantly, really, I, I didn't think anything about it. I said to him, what are you doing? Get in the house. What are you waiting on? And he looked at me with this serious look on his face and he said these words. He said, you mean I'm really invited to come inside the house? And I said, yeah, quit being stupid. What are you doing? Get in here. <laughs> insensitive, right? Seriously insensitive. And he looked at me and he said, I've never been in a white person's house before. And I mean, I'm in high school. I, I didn't think about cultural sensitivity at that moment. I was just like, quit being stupid, get in the house, grab some junk food. We got games to play. These are serious times. There are video games waiting on us. <laughs> and that was my attitude. But it's not anymore. I hope it's not yours as we think seriously about difficult matters. There are probably some of you in the room right now who have issues. There may be somebody in the room here that's a racist, even at Cedarville. There may be some of you who are racist and you don't have a clue that you're racist because you've never been in a context where it would surface itself and you would have thoughts that you would think, oh, where did that come from? Well, today's passage, as we look at it, deals with racism, not of blacks and whites, but of Gentiles and Jews. And there's much application for us to be made even to our own context as the scripture speaks to us today. So I want you to know as I come to this text that I have, and I will continue to, personally and here at Cedarville, fight against any form of racism. Amen. You're gonna see it in the text today. But the, this mentality of racism 
I believe, comes directly from Satan. I believe it's Satan's attempt to build up walls that the Lord Jesus Christ, through his blood, has already torn down and destroyed, and that we then build walls to separate each other so that the church doesn't look like what the church should look like as a foreshadowing of what will one day come when Jesus sets everything right. So today I'm going to take that type angle dealing with the Jewish Gentile division and we're going to look at a text. The central idea of the text is that the gospel brings unity, peace, and community to those who find their identity in Christ. The gospel is the blood of Jesus that redeems us It's the blood of Jesus that tears down the hostility. It's the blood of Jesus that tears down all of the walls. It's the gospel that brings a unity that a secular nation cannot enjoy. It's the gospel that brings a unity that should be present in the church visibly as well as in our own personal lives, as well as here at Cedarville University. It is the gospel that brings peace with God vertically and horizontally with our neighbors It is the gospel that brings a new community so that we can then live with one another in peace and harmony. That even though we may have issues because we're all sinners, we have a new community of genuine love for one another where we consider other needs better than ourselves. A unity, a peace, and a community to those who find their identity in Christ. Now, I've added that last part on purpose. Because I think when the walls come up, it's when we start finding our identity in things other than Christ. My identity is found in that I'm white or that I'm American or that I'm Republican or that I'm this or that I'm that. And all of a sudden, walls begin to be built up where the gospel says we don't need walls. We need unity, peace, and community. So let me read our text because I think I started preaching a while back. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Unity, peace, and community. Therefore, we remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at one time, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice how he brings us to the no hope the same way he did in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The despair, and then here are the great words, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit 
to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would guard my words and tone. Help me to say only that which fits with your scripture. Help us to forget anything that doesn't. And may you be glorified and the gospel lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. All right, so first of all in our text, we're going to look at verses 11 through 13 at the unity in Christ. We have unity in Christ. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles. So notice here what's happening. Paul is writing from the culture of dominance, from the Jewish culture. Now, most of us in this room are Gentiles. So when we read this text, we should read this text from the minority position. We are in the Gentile position. We are in the position that was ostracized. And I'll go into what all that means here in just a minute. But we should read the text in a position of those without power, in the minority, those who were not chosen. But then for the majority of us here in this room, we should apply this text as though we are the majority culture, those who are in power, those who have the dominance now in the way that we live. Paul writes from this perspective, and most of us in this room are Gentiles, and when we see the words, you Gentiles, and we're called uncircumcision, immediately we bristle just a little bit. We don't like it. Remember that feeling as the minority bristling a little bit when you need to have sympathy with other minorities who are bristling a little bit at things that are going on. Because of our birth, because we were not born in the right family lineage, because we did not have the right skin pigmentation, because we did not have the right physical features, we were without. Our ethnicity was not chosen, whereas another ethnicity were chosen, even though we were all one race descending from Adam and Eve. We were the Gentiles. They were the chosen Jews. So what does that mean? Warren Wiersbe does a great job with words and showing us what that means. It means we were without Christ. It says it here in the text. Separated from Christ. It means we were without citizenship. Alienated from the commonwealth. It means we were without covenants of promise. It means we were without hope. It means we were without God. Those five things that we all see here in verse 12 and following. Without Christ, without citizenship, without covenants, without hope, and without God. Without Christ, we have no hope. We didn't have Christ. Without citizenship, what do we have? You know what this means? Reading this text in the right way without citizenship means that we were once the immigrant. We didn't have citizenship. Now, I'm not running for political office. I'm not making a political statement. So don't read more into what I'm saying than what I'm saying. I'm a preacher who likes theology, who loves the Bible. So as I talk about this, I want to talk about this directly from Scripture and what Scripture says without you applying this to other contexts that I'm not trying to address. We were the immigrant. 
So now whatever your positions and whatever you do and whatever you say, theologically speaking, you should make sure that you remember that we once were the immigrant seeking to be brought into the chosen people and were able to do so by the grace and mercy and blood of Jesus Christ. However that works out in your political science classes, you can talk to your political science faculty members about. I'll leave that for some other day. We had no hope. We were outsiders. We were the immigrants. We were hopeless. Notice the despair here. I'm not going to go through it and give you the same weight that I did in the last message. Just remember that weight. Without Christ, without citizenship, without the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God, we should feel that weight. And then it says, but now in Christ, which parallels that famous but God of Ephesians 2.4. What does the but now in Christ mean? Paul's writing here, Paul's telling us in Christ, that in Christ pulls back in all of those 13 mentions of in Christ that we see in chapter one, all 27 mentions of in Christ that we see throughout the book of Ephesians. The reason we've uh, titled this entire series Identity in Christ is because it helps us recognize what all we have. But now in Christ, we have been elected. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. We have been adopted. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. We have been purchased at the blood of Jesus at a high cost. We have unity in verse 10. And so notice here now, this chapter is picking up on chapter one, verse 10, and the unity and the whole purpose of the book is that he's after unifying everything, all things in Christ. We have an inheritance. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We had no covenants of promise, but now in Christ, we have the promised Holy Spirit who has sealed us and who lives within us. All of this has changed. That's what it means to be in Christ. Notice the difference. We were once without Christ, but now Paul says in Christ, we have Christ. He says it 13 times in chapter one. We were without citizenship, but Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we are citizens of a holy nation. And Paul in Philippians 3, 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. We have citizenship without the covenants of promise, but chapter 1 tells us we have the promised Holy Spirit without hope. But Paul prays in Ephesians 1, 18, remember the prayer that you would know the hope to which you have been called. And in Ephesians 4, 4, he says that we are called in one hope, the same hope. Whether you're red, yellow, black, or white, it's the same hope. It's the one hope and the one spirit to the one God. Without God, but now in Christ, we have been adopted by the Father as sons, and he uses his great power for our good. So things have changed. Everything that was desperate before, but now in Christ, has been changed. You, who were once, us, me, who were once far off, have now been brought near. Unity in Christ. Second section here talks about peace in Christ. It starts in verse 14, goes through verse 18. You see the word peace mentioned four times in this section. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. There's a personal peace that is mentioned here. It says that he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see the word one here mentioned four times in this passage as well. By abolishing the laws of the commandments, the laws that would have separated us, expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one again, new man. So the two become one new. The Jews and the Gentiles become one. Now if the Jews and the Gentiles become one, think with me here, 
an application flowing from this text should be that there is no more two. There's only one in Christ. If there's only one in Christ, then there are no blacks or whites or Hispanics or Asians in Christ. It is in Christ. So if the two become one, why is it that we continually build up walls of segregation where there should be none? So making peace that he might reconcile us both vertically to God and then in one body. Now there's a key word there, one body. What is the one body that he's gonna reconcile us in? That one body should be and is the church of Jesus Christ. So when you go to church, church should look very different than what the society around us should look like. In the church, there should be no racism. In the church, there should be no hostility. In the church, there should be unity and peace and community in a way that you can't find it somewhere else. That's what the church should look like. So, so does it? Well, no, it doesn't. Why not? Because we're all sinners. I mean, it's complicated. It's not as easy just reading the text because the text also says, be holy as I'm holy. We can't figure that one out either, right? But let's make a commitment that even though it's hard and even though it's messy and even though there are no easy answers, that this generation, that all of us in this room will walk out of this room and we will say in the church, I will fight against even my own inclinations if they push back. I will fight against what I think may be my right or some silliness otherwise to create walls of separation and segregation. And I will say, I wanna be part of something that's bigger than me, that doesn't look just like me, that doesn't act just like me. I wanna be part of a community that is so rooted in Jesus Christ that I have unity and peace and true, authentic, genuine community. Amen. Peace is mentioned four times. One is mentioned four times. How do we get there? I think we have to focus on what unites us in Christ rather than the things that divide us. The Savior has reconciled us horizontally and vertically. Christ is our peace. He creates a new group. He destroys the hostility. Destroying the hostility is the vertical relationship, the one new man. By destroying the hostility, what is the hostility if it's not racism? It's horizontal reconciliation. He reconciles us to God. There's vertical reconciliation. And as we are reconciled to God and we love God, one of our core values, love God, and love for others. So we have the vertical and we have the horizontal. We have a love for God and a love for others. And we realize that Christ has brought us together and he has given us one spirit and access to one father, all the same. The church should be the outworking of this. Notice that when he says this, he says it has been given to those who were near to the Jews, but peace has also been preached and given to those who were far off the Gentiles. I can't help but think that there are many of us in the room who have at some point in time felt like we were far off. Think about it in your own life. Have you ever felt like you were far off and not near? Perhaps when you have an accent that nobody else has, especially if it's not a cool accent like Sam Alberry's. 
Perhaps if you are Southern, living in the North, you said, wait a second, this is the Midwest. But what you don't understand is for South Carolinians, anything above the Ohio River is the North. If you're a Northerner living in the Midwest, if you're not as Christian as everybody else appears to be on the outside, anybody feel that way? Or maybe you're too Christian and you can't believe other people would ever wear that or do that or say that or, oh my goodness, listen to their music. Ever felt like an outsider? Perhaps you're an athlete or perhaps you're not. A musician or perhaps you're not. Smart. Some people don't study, they make A's. Are you kidding me, really? Some people work incredibly hard and they make C's. Outward appearance. Outward appearance in many different ways. The color of your skin, the features that you have, the color of your hair, the size of your body, the way that you look, the things you don't like. And do you recognize that the outward features that you look in the mirror and that you might not like are really no different than the outward features that somebody else looks in the mirror and they might not like? Outward appearance. My contention is that we have all at some point in time felt like we didn't belong. In fact, I believe the devil wants you to feel like you're far off and to stay isolated as though you're far off when Christ says he has redeemed us by his blood to bring us all near to one God through one spirit. So how many of you, raise your hands, have ever felt far off? Keep your hands up for just a second. Get them up high. Because one of the things I want you to do is look around the room and see how many hands are up. You might find that person that you think would never feel, you can put your hands down, never feel far off, and you're looking at going, you felt far off? I want you to know if you're in this room right now and you feel like you're far off, Cedarville University should be a place where you never feel like you're far off. You say, well, I'm a sinner. Welcome to the club. We all are. You say, I'm not as Christian as I need to be. Great place to grow in the greenhouse at Cedarville University. Whatever it is, you are not far off because Christ has already made you one. He has redeemed you. You are near. It's the devil's lie to tell you you're far off and you need to distance yourself. It's the truth of the gospel to say, bring yourself near, replace the lie with the truth. All right, now let's get a little messy. I, I love you all or I wouldn't even go here. But let's stop building walls that Christ has broken down. If me being white or you being Asian or Hispanic or black is more important to us than us being in Christ together, then we have raised, then we have built a dividing wall of hostility that the blood of Christ has broken down, and that is sin. If me being American and you being African or Asian or European or Korean or list your country is more important than us being in Christ, then we have built a dividing wall of hostility that the blood of Christ has broken down, and it is sin. 
If me being from a certain economic status or class status and you being from a poorer status or chances are a much wealthier status, if that's more important than us being in Christ, then we have raised a dividing wall that Christ has broken down and it's sin. We are all ultimately citizens of heaven Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves all the little children of the world. The poor or rich doesn't matter because we're all now joint heirs with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Low status or high status doesn't matter because Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last. So consider Philippians 2 where you look to others as more important than yourself and you have the mind that was in Christ Jesus when he humbled himself from being in eternity on the throne of God and he became a man and humbled himself to obedience even to the point of death on a cross. So here's my question to you. Are we not working against Christ and against the gospel when we build up dividing walls that the blood of Christ has already broken down. And I don't think we think about it that way. When we start building up walls in our minds, in our hearts, with our posts, that build up dividing walls, I don't think we think about the fact that, no, 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 that's working against the gospel. That's working against the blood of Christ that unifies us. The two become one in the gospel. Not the one become individually many in the gospel. So we have unity in the gospel. And we have peace in the gospel. And we also have community in the gospel. Community in Christ, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Our community should be based on theological truths that are presented here. You are no longer a stranger or an alien. You are now a fellow citizen. So we have one nation in Christ. That one nation is that we are citizens of heaven. We are of the kingdom of heaven. The gospel provides citizenship for the saved immigrant just as much as it provides it for the saved American. We are members of one family. Look at verse 19. You are members of the household of God. So we have a common foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. We have been adopted. We are members of the family of God. So God provides family for the orphan, or for the one born in the inner city, or in the country, or on the wrong side of the tracks, or on the right side of those man-made tracks, just as much as he does the others. We are family. Now, we may have some really weird members of our family, like you're gonna encounter when you go back for Thanksgiving and family reunions and, you know, the weird uncle. We may have some really weird members, but they're still family. And what does everybody say about family? You love your family even if they're odd. they still come to Thanksgiving dinner. They still come to the family reunions. So yeah, maybe you've got some friends that are a little bit awkward, but they're in Christ and they're family. And family matters. 
Do you treat people as though they're family? It's one church, verse 21 and 22. We're being built up, joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. This is a corporate dwelling place of believers. Joined together indicates an ongoing process. We are being joined together. It's not a perfect nature, but it should look more and more like heaven's going to look. Jesus is the cornerstone. The gospel is our foundation. And towards that end, places like Cedarville should look more and more like heaven's going to look too. In the church, we should see that new type of mankind, that new one man, foreshadowing what is to come. Unity, peace, and true, genuine, authentic community. Not forced. Not a community that you fabricate with falseness of creating things that aren't genuine, but a genuine love for others for genuine community. All right, so what's my conclusion? This is what it should look like, but it won't be easy. And it's gonna take effort on all of our part. I wanna give you a foreshadow here. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We've been called to unity, peace, and community. Paul later is going to challenge us in the application portion of this letter to walk worthy of that call with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So how do we do this? We do this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. When we are insensitive or when we ask bad questions or when we do dumb things, it's with all humility, genuineness, patience, and love. Verse three of chapter four, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, pulling back the theological truths just presented to us in a practical application. Ephesians 4, 13, until we all attain unity of the faith. We gotta attain it, we haven't arrived yet, but we should be eager to maintain that unity. Eager to maintain that unity means we don't post anything physically or on social media that would make our minority brothers and sisters in Christ feel uncomfortable. It means we don't post anything physically or socially that builds up a dividing wall of hostility that the blood of Christ has broken down. If we do, we work against the gospel and against Christ himself. Ephesians 4, 41 through 32 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, it moves right on to chapter five and says, walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Central idea of our text is that the gospel brings unity, peace, and community to those who find their identity in Christ. I'll leave you with this closing thought. You know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer, right? A thermometer is something you put in your mouth that takes the temperature and a thermometer adjusts to whatever temperature it is. If you've had the cedar plague, you've had a thermometer in your mouth taking the temperature and telling you whether you're normal or whether you're abnormal or whether you have issues, right? The thermometer. There's also a thermostat. A thermostat sits on the wall and a thermostat changes the temperature of the room to what it should be. You can set the thermostat and that thermostat will slowly work to change things until it gets it to the right spot. Now, a thermostat on the wall doesn't change things immediately. 
It doesn't change things just like this, but that thermostat is set. It's fixed. It doesn't change with culture. It doesn't move as things shift. It knows exactly what it's been set to, and it works to get it there. Can I challenge you all that all of us would be thermostats for the gospel of Jesus Christ and we would seek the unity, the peace, and the community present in Ephesians chapter 2, that we would set that as our course, that we know what we should seek after, so that's going to be where we're set. And then as we're able, as thermostats placed in different room after different room after different room, we work slowly and wisely to make sure we bring the culture around us to what the gospel says it should be, a gospel of unity, peace, and genuine, authentic Christian community wherever God places us. Thermostats for the gospel, not a thermometer. Not a thermometer that when you're placed in a hostile environment, you join in in the hostility. Not a thermometer so that when you read some crazy blog about some racist nationalist something or another, you say, oh, I'm going to do that. Not a thermometer that adjusts to whatever argument of the day is popular, but a thermostat. A thermostat that says, this is my temperature setting, and on this I will stand, and I can do no other. Will you commit to try your best throughout your life to be thermostats for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Oh, dear God, I pray that you would just help us to let your word sink deeply. Lord, if I've said anything that is not in accordance with your word, may we just forget it quickly. But Lord, may your word and your truths sink deep into our hearts. And Lord, may we be tender to your spirit as your spirit brings to things in our lives that we may need to change or course corrections we might need to make. And Lord, may our one desire be to seek the peace and the unity and the community found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not for our glory, not for the glory of Cedarville, but Lord, for your church and for your fame and for your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, and you are dismissed.